Uh, Please find your way to the book of Acts this evening, the book of Acts. We're going to set out tonight on a study through this dramatic and beloved book. The scenes and stories here make us marvel and think, man, those were the days, right? When you think back on the book of Acts, that's kind of uh, a sentiment that we have, that those were the days. As we read the Bible, sometimes we come across sections or chapters that, if we're honest, we have a hard time sort of holding our attention, right? Long list of materials for building the temple or the genealogies. Most of us probably don't get overly excited about hitting numbers in our personal reading program. Uh, But we don't have that problem in the book of Acts. It's just jam-packed wall-to-wall with all sorts of good stuff, things that stir the heart and uh, challenge the mind and make us excited. Before we embark on chapter 1, imagine for a moment that tomorrow morning you received a call. It's the Billy Graham Evangelistic Organization, and they've dialed your number, and they invited you to lead a crusade tour from California to Texas. We're just pretending here, so let's say that you agree. You feel like this is a good idea. You don't know why they think you're the person for the job, but okay, you're going to go for it. Let's do it. You do have a few questions, though, questions like, where are we going to go and who's going to go with me? They answer, don't worry about it. And you say, well, how are we going to travel? We're going to do plane, train, automobile. Where will the stops be along the way? You'll see. Well, how are these events going to work? What's the program? What should I plan for? What will I be saying? It's going to be great. You'll love it. And that's it. Even if you're not a type A person tonight, (laughs) you know, this plan is not off to the greatest of starts. Might have a little bit of a problem. Knowing what you know about the book of Acts, consider for a moment how little information the church really had in advance when it came to being established, when it came to starting her mission. We are generally pretty well versed in the adventures of the book of Acts, but what we find in chapter after chapter is a group of people living out their faith, often without any heads up of what was coming next whatsoever. And in that way, it's just like our experience as Christians here tonight, right? You don't know what tomorrow holds. You know your God is going to be faithful, and you know He has intentions for you. You know He's made promises, and He has a will and a plan that He is working out. But you don't know what stops are going to be made along the road of life tomorrow. Acts records for us the remarkable stories of the work of God through His people, but along the way, they did not have a detailed itinerary. They had no five-year plan. Instead, what we see is these people sent out with a somewhat vague directive, we'll see it tonight, an essential promise, and, of course, the faithfulness of God. And it turns out that that equipment is more than sufficient not to just fulfill a spiritual life, but to turn the world absolutely upside down, to change all of human history. Those were the days in the book of Acts that changed history, where multiplied thousands were being saved for eternity. If you travel through just briskly through the pages and kind of look and see even the headings in your Bible and see what is happening and maybe jog your memory of earlier times that you've read the book, you'll see these themes again and again and again. One of the themes that keeps popping up is just multiple, multiple multitudes and many, many people saved. Next chapter, many, many people saved. Next chapter, many, many people saved. The book is not just remarkable historically, though. For a Christian, it's also remarkable personally. This book explains how you got here tonight. Without Acts, 
What would happen? You would turn from the book of John to the book of Romans and say, what just happened? That'd be quite a page turn. You'd feel like you were, you picked up the, that the publisher did something wrong, right? How do you get from the last chapter of John to the first chapter of Romans? We wouldn't know who this Paul guy is who's talking. Who are you? We don't know. We wouldn't understand how you get from a group of 11 Jewish believers in Jerusalem to an all-Gentile church in Hanford. Because of this, commentators like Dr. Ivor Powell point out that Acts really does stand in magnificent isolation in the New Testament. Not only does it stir our hearts and expand upon doctrine and give us many examples to look at, it also sort of serves as a biblical 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Maybe some of you have been diving into these resources. Where did I come from? What's the makeup of my DNA? And you're sending away to these services and learning about these different things. Well, the book of Acts is in a, in a sense like that because it reveals to each of us what we are supposed to be about as members of this church, not just this church locally, but the church universally. The church established in the first century and continuing still today. You and I are part of the same church, Christ's body. You and I are part of the same human chain, given the same commission from our Lord as Peter and Paul and all the rest. And so we really can't overstate the significance of the book of Acts for Christian living. Now in your Bible, it's probably titled Acts of the Apostles. It's not what the author originally called it. It was written as a letter, not a textbook. The manuscripts often title it simply praxis, a Greek word, which means actions or works. Some of those manuscripts also add of the apostles, but we'll find that there's a lot more going on than just what the apostles were doing. In fact, most of the apostles, the majority of them, at least the original 11 apostles, they're only listed once at the beginning, and then we don't see them saying or doing anything from here on out. In the meantime, we see many, many individual Christians, not just apostles, being used by God. We see communities responding both positively and negatively to the gospel. We see governments taking action in response to the gospel. And so page after page is full of activity, actions, not just of one or two people, but of multiplied thousands of people. And in fact, in most of these chapters, a recurring theme that we will see is not only that people are getting saved, but that we see these were the days when God was stirring the hearts of individuals to action. Again and again and again, you see not just Peter, not just Paul, but lots of different people being stirred in their hearts to serve the Lord and to uh, follow the Lord and to do something that the Lord laid on their heart. Sometimes those actions were big, sometimes they were small, sometimes they had a huge result, sometimes they were just quickly forgotten. But each time God stirred someone's heart and they obeyed, we see the kind of work Christ began to do through his spiritual body and the kind of power he supplied for them to do it. And that is not only inspiring for us, but immensely instructive. And so let's begin at verse 1 here. It says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. From antiquity, it's been accepted that Dr. Luke was the author of Acts. He doesn't name himself in either the gospel or here, but there is excellent internal and external evidence for, it, for us. The gospel of Luke is the former account being referenced. In the first volume, Luke uh, is the first volume of his two-book saga. Acts is the sequel, written probably sometime around 64 AD. It's hard to pin down for sure. 
We know that Luke was a physician. We know that he was a personal friend and a traveling companion of Paul the Apostle right up to the very end, probably watched Paul be martyred. Uh, In Luke chapter 1, he identifies himself as an expert when it comes to recording and relaying the information concerning Jesus Christ and his church. Between his two books, Luke, the only Gentile author of the New Testament, wrote the largest slice of the New Testament. 27% of the New Testament is written by Luke. He wrote more verses than Paul did. Kind of an interesting thing to think about. Luke's gospel covered what Jesus began to do and to teach, but as far as the good doctor was concerned, the Lord was just getting started. Acts was part two, revealing the next phase of all Jesus would do and teach through his spiritual body, the church. And so a good question for each of us to ask at this point is, okay, well then, if the gospel of Luke was the beginning of what Jesus began to teach and to do. And if the book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus is now doing through his spiritual body on the earth, the church, well, then, of course, what follows is this question, then what is God doing in my life? What is God teaching me? Because he is a God who does. He is a God who speaks. He's a God who calls us and sends us and changes us day by day. Uh, The Lord Jesus is not on a long vacation before his second coming. He's not resting up before Armageddon. He is a busy Lord. And what he began in the gospel, he continued in the book of Acts. And what he began in Acts, he continues today through you and through me. A good question to ask. Verse two says this, until the day in which he, Jesus, was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. There are already more believers in Jesus beside the 11 apostles, and I say 11 because it was the 12 that we think of in the Gospels minus Judas, but the responsibility of laying the foundation of the church was given to these guys, the apostles. Now, later in chapter 1, we'll get into this a bit more, but there was a special place for what the Bible refers to as the 12. It was a specific group, the 12 apostles. There was a specific place for them in the plan of God. We will discover in the book of Acts that there were other apostles beside the 12. For example, Paul, of course, was an apostle. Barnabas is identified as an apostle in the book of Acts. But the hand-chosen apostles, known as the 12, had a special assignment from the Lord to be the foundation upon which the building of the church would be constructed. We notice here the emphasis on the commandments that Christ gave these men. Though they would have powerful, dynamic, supernatural ministries, though they had enjoyed unrestricted access to Jesus, though they were men who had spent years with him right in his presence, speaking directly to him face to face, yet they were not some uh, super class of sequestered people like, oh, we can't talk to the apostles. They do whatever they want to do. We think of sometimes these super A-list celebrities, right? always ensconced by people, always away, always in a different orbit than the rest of the world. Well, that's not how the apostles behaved. In fact, uh, we see here that they were still men under authority. They were men under orders. Jesus had given them commandments. They were sent to serve. What did the Lord command them? You know, the book is going to make it clear that these guys had no plan. No plan. They had no plan. And most of the time, they had no idea what to do in a given situation other than trust the Lord and seek his will. 
We see them being led day by day, sometimes just moment by moment, responding to what was going on as it happened and as the Lord led them. They had no details laid out. Here's how we know that. The first thing they're going to talk about after the ascension, well, who's going to replace Judas? We don't know. Okay? Are Gentiles allowed to become Christians? We don't know. If Gentiles are allowed to become Christians, do they have to become Jews first? Do they have to be circumcised? We don't know. It's not just people who were getting saved who were asking these questions. The apostles didn't know the answer to these questions. And so it seems that what the Lord was commanding them to do was to wait, to abide. We see Jesus in the Gospels giving a specific command to Peter, hey, feed my sheep, right? And so the kinds of commands that the Lord was giving them, uh, it was not a 10-year business plan for the church. He didn't have a PowerPoint of what they were going to do on Tuesday, you're going to do this, and a month from now, you're going to do this, and a year from now, you're He didn't tell them who was going to go where throughout the world. That was going to be the work of the Spirit who would not only empower God's people, but also direct them as he saw fit. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis for Christianity. Without it, we have no hope, we have no reason to believe. We will see that the resurrection is the rallying point for each sermon in the book of Acts, and Acts contains a bunch of sermons and some, a bunch of other speeches that are kind of part sermon, part discourse or debate or defense, legal defense, those sorts of things, but a ton of sermons in the book of Acts. And there are 24 speeches in the book, either sermons or discourses or monologues or debates. It's about 30% of the book. And the rallying point for each of the sermons in the book of Acts is the resurrection, is the resurrection, the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, that he died but rose again. It is the resurrection that makes Christianity what it is. Jesus Christ is not some wise teacher. He's not some moral philosopher. He's the living God. And so if you ever hear someone, either in conversation or if on the TV or something, talk about, well, Jesus was, you know, a great moral teacher, you know, we don't have, we're not even using the same language because Jesus Christ is the living God. And without the resurrection, nothing that Jesus Christ said matters at all. In fact, he should be absolutely rejected if his resurrection didn't take place. The resurrection makes all the difference. It changes all the rules of life, all the rules of reality, all the rules of eternity. They talk about how, you know, in the history of science, every now and then, depending on the field, like one or two guys will come along and completely change the realm of science, right? We think of a guy like Newton. He comes along and revolutionizes the world of physics, until Einstein comes along and revolutionizes the world of physics where all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, everything just changed because of what you, you know, in their case, discovered about reality. Well, Jesus Christ's resurrection changes all the rules of life, all the rules of reality, all of the rules of eternity. And so it is the focus point of Christianity. Now here, Luke says that Jesus proved the reality of his resurrection for over a month. He appeared physically to hundreds of people. Paul at one point lets us know that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. These believers were able to speak with him, to eat with him. They could handle him and cling to him. We're fond of saying that the resurrection is the most provable event in human history. If that seems far-fetched, we'd recommend one of the many books that dive into this issue, books like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. 
If anything in history is sure, it's Jesus' resurrection. Listen to this quote from Dr. J. Vernon McGee. He said this, the problem of an unbeliever today is not with the facts, but with his own unbelief. The facts are available. I wonder whether anyone doubts the Battle of Waterloo was a historical event. I believe Napoleon lived. I believe that he fought the Battle of Waterloo, but I have very little evidence for it. Actually, there is 10,000 times more evidence for the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ than there is for the Battle of Waterloo. It's provable, infallible, irrefutable. Luke also lets us know in verse 3 that during those 40 days, Jesus spent a great deal of time talking with his disciples about the kingdom of God. Now, just file that away for when we get to verse 6. But verse 4 first, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart to Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. The promise was the coming of the Holy Spirit the one who would give them the power they needed to do what they were being asked to do. He was the one who would give them the spiritual eyes to see what they needed to see. He was the one who would supply them with courage to stand and to speak, even to stand up against people who wanted to murder them. The Holy Spirit was the one who would lead them and guide them as they set out on their life in the church age. Reading verse four, I imagine someone in the group thinking this, uh, don't we need the Holy Spirit like right now? What do you mean I have to wait for this? Where is he? (laughs) What are we waiting for? But they'd have to stick around and wait another 10 days. So Jesus had given them their commission. He explained to them how they were going to continue his work. He laid the responsibility of global evangelism at their feet. But then he says, listen, don't do anything until you've received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's what will endue you with the power to do all this. And without that, don't bother. Don't bother with any of this other stuff. In other words, don't fake it till you make it. Have you ever heard that phrase, that expression? Fake it till you make it. And that may work in some realm of business or whatever, But that's not how God wanted his church to go out and do kingdom work at the beginning. It's not how God wants his church to operate now. We talked on Sunday really briefly about how one very prominent church uh, has been known to plant fake baptizees, that they have a spontaneous baptism, but then, okay, I'm going to get up, but it's fake, it's planted, it's a laugh track that they have installed. We don't fake it till we make it. Think of, think of what the kind of clout these apostles could have had. Hey, all you people in Jerusalem, you're hearing all these things. You're all talking about the empty tomb. The religious leaders are trying to quash it as best they can, but word's getting around. Hundreds and hundreds of people are seeing this risen Christ. I'm Peter, you know. I'm John, you know, the one whom Jesus loved. And they could have gone out and using human hype and human methodology and faking it till they make it, established a pretty good church. They could have gone and hung out a shingle. Come talk to us about the Lord Jesus. Lord, okay, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come when he's going to come. But for right now, we can get a pretty good fan base going, get some followers and some likes going here. And Jesus said, no, don't do any of that. You're going to wait. You're just going to wait and hang out, stick around in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In John chapter 20, we learn that Jesus had breathed on these guys saying, receive the Holy Spirit. And so clearly here there is a separate idea that he is referencing. 
The baptism with the Holy Spirit is, of course, controversial, can be sometimes difficult to communicate. It's oftentimes emotional, depending on your Christian background. But what's clear here is that despite the fact that the Holy Spirit was within them, Jesus had breathed on them and said, hey, receive the Holy Spirit. He's now telling them they're going to be waiting for a subsequent immersive baptism with the Holy Spirit, which would uniquely and essentially empower them to live the Christian life as witnesses for Jesus. That was the great promise from God, and that was the prerequisite for everything that would follow in these chapters. And we'll get to see it uh, not just in chapter two, but at other points in the book as well. Verse six, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Commentaries like to ignite in controversy at this verse. Some of them are quick to chastise and belittle the apostles for asking this question. But should they be criticized? First of all, and we're really quick to criticize people in the Bible and to assume that we would have done so much better. Uh, we have a lot more hindsight, a lot more uh, understanding. You know, these guys didn't have a New Testament to read, did they? But even still, should they be criticized for this question? Well, first of all, we'll find that some of the greatest moments in Acts come from people asking questions. It's a book full of questions. Questions from believers, questions from non-believers. The Philippian jailer, Cornelius, the Bereans. You know, when you have a question that you want the Lord to answer, don't hide it away. If you want to have a question about the Lord's will, the Lord's truth, he's excited to have us ask it. And so we shouldn't, you know, shame people for asking questions. But second, remember what had been happening for the last 40 days. Jesus had been popping in, getting his disciples ready for this new dispensation. And we're told he had been specifically talking to them about things pertaining to the kingdom, verse 3. And we're told in Luke 24 that during this period of time, the Lord, quote, opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And so in response to all that the Lord had been teaching, okay, so you're saying at some point there's going to be a literal kingdom established in Israel. You're going to restore, not, a, not just create, but restore the kingdom in Israel. So is that going to happen now or is that going to happen later? Their minds were drawn to prophecy, and we'll see that there is a very significant emphasis on prophecy throughout the book, especially in the sermons that are delivered. Not only do those sermons talk about the resurrection again and again, they also talk about prophets and prophecy again and again. And we see that the apostles consistently believed that the prophecies of the Bible were fulfilled literally. In the day of Pentecost, Peter's going to say, hey, remember what we read in Joel? That's what's happening right now. And the Lord had been talking to them about the kingdom and been opening their understanding of the scriptures. And they said, oh, so you mean the literal kingdom? Is that going to happen right now? And so prophecy matters. It mattered to the apostles. It should matter to us. We should interpret it the way they interpreted it, which was assuming that those prophecies were going to happen literally. Now, some commentaries suggest that the apostles here were only thinking selfishly. They were blind to the truth of God's word. But that simply contradicts what we've already been told that their understanding had been opened. And when Jesus answers them, he does not rebuke them or sit them back down and say, well, man, you guys obviously didn't pay attention to my last lecture. Sit down. Let's turn back to that passage again. Here's how he responded. Verse seven. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority. And so 
his response was not a rebuke. It was not that they were blind or that there was not going to be a literal kingdom, only a spiritual one. It would have been a great time for him to point that out. Instead, he simply tells them that they don't need to know the specific timing of these things. And this is in keeping with the theme that we're seeing tonight. Jesus gave them no details about what was going to unfold in the church age. Other than that, hey, the Holy Spirit is coming at some point, and you're going to be used by me as you follow my lead, and as you're empowered to go out generally, and as I lead you specifically. But other than that, no details. They had asked, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel with you on the throne as king? And it would have been a perfect time for the Lord to correct them because they were, after all, the ones who were going to be sent out to go preach the kingdom. So if there wasn't going to be a literal kingdom, and these are the guys that are going to go out and preach the kingdom, and they say, hey, is the literal kingdom going to be established right now? It would be a good time for Jesus to say, well, there is no literal kingdom. Instead, he says, hey, what I want you to worry about right now is not knowing the details of the dates and the calendar of when the kingdom is going to be established, but to wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit and to just be ready to be led by me and be led by uh, the Holy Spirit to whatever we would have you do. And clearly, they were okay with that. What Jesus told them was that he was not going to give them a specific calendar, not for the kingdom, not for the church age. There would be no detailed itinerary for them at this point. Instead of an itinerary, what they needed was the soon-to-come filling of the Holy Spirit and a mindset. They needed to have the mindset of a witness. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That was all the detail they got. They weren't told when or how these things would happen. They didn't know about anybody named Paul, anybody named Cornelius. They had never imagined a Timothy or a Dr. Luke, for that matter. Instead, they were given this very general plan that at some point, the general you would move outward, starting from the upper room and down into the city streets and along the roads from place to place until the ends of the earth had been reached with the power of the Lord through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As they went, they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live and to speak as witnesses wherever they were sent. That's the business plan of the church. And if I want to be a part of this amazing story, this amazing human chain of you know, person after person who has been handed the gospel to go out and continue this work, the question that arises here, okay, well then, what end of the earth have I been sent to as a witness? You know, Peter would find himself in Joppa, but not in Turkey. Paul would find himself in Rome, but not in Spain. Some went to Samaria, some went to Antioch, some went to India, some went to California, right? As we follow the history of the church, the history of God's actions through his church, all were sent somewhere. All of us are sent somewhere. Each specific calling may be different, but the commission is the same for each and every one of us. And so it follows that if the commission is the same, then we need what these people needed. And that's what's so great about the book of Acts. It reveals this for us. During this transition period, Jesus was under the impression that his followers needed three things, to understand the scriptures, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and to be specifically led day by day. 
it's clear he did not think they needed a detailed itinerary of life or a five-year plan for the church, that he did not think they needed a step-by-step layout of how everything was going to go, or even how they were to officially organize for that matter. No, what God's people need is the understanding of his word and the power of his spirit. We must have both of these things, not one without the other. We have to have both of them. They are essential. In Acts, we see those were the days of men and women living as witnesses of the resurrection, preaching the kingdom with a power that shook the world. We see people living in simple faithfulness and really understanding uh, the word of God. We see them really experiencing the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit. We see them receiving more and more understanding of the truth of God's word. And we see individuals being stirred to serve, big and small, near and far. Those were the days. And nothing about that is different than what we should expect and pray for today. The book continues with you and me. One of the best features of the book is that it just suddenly ends. It doesn't resolve, it's just over. And the idea is that it's because the book of Acts continues. The Lord is writing more chapters through your life and through my life and through the centuries as his church has been filled with the Spirit and sent out to do what it's always been sent out to do. We've received the call. Perhaps we don't have a detailed itinerary, but we have what these believers had, God's Word, His Spirit, His leading. And along with that supply of equipment, we've been commanded with the same commission to go and live as witnesses in a lost and dying world. And some of you probably already know that the word for witnesses here is the word martyr. The book of Acts will also tell the stories of those who paid the ultimate price for their faith. But in reality, every believer featured on these pages is a martyr. That's what it means to be a Christian. Because they considered their lives as forfeit to the cause of Christ. Whether someone actually killed their body or not, they were forfeit to the Lord and to his will. Remember, Jesus invites us to die to ourselves, to live as martyrs, whether that's in the boardroom or on the gallows. And as we go, we live to witness by his power. By definition, a witness is not sharing opinion, but is sharing what is real, sharing what has been experienced. A witness is a person who has seen for themselves something that they know personally to be true through experience, not something they heard secondhand, not something they think sounds like a good idea, but something that they know. That's the life we're called to, the life of a witness, the life of a martyr as we're filled by the Lord and sent out as these men and women were sent out. One commentator reminds us that a witness does not say, I think so. He says, I know. As we read these pages, we'll see those were the days when men and women knew the power of the Spirit and when we were used by God to spread the gospel and to further the spiritual aspect of his kingdom while we wait for the physical establishment of his kingdom. Let the same be true of us as we continue the story day by day in the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his word. Amen?